This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Claire Nichols, and today on The Book Show, you're going to hear the interview I think I've been preparing for for most of my life. I grew up in a house full of Tim Winton books. My mum was a huge fan. She loved his lyrical writing, the unique way he captures the West Australian landscape. And she gave me free reign to explore his books, picking up anything I wanted. Uh, I tore through his Lockie Leonard series for kids. And eventually I moved on to the adult novels, uh, including the Four Miles Franklin winners, Shallows, Breath, Dirt Music and Cloud Street, my favourite. But there were so many to pick from. Tim Winton has published 29 books. He's been named a national living treasure. There's even a species of fish named after him. So it was a huge thrill to sit down with Tim for a full hour in front of a live audience for the big weekend of books as we celebrated 40 years of writing. National living treasure. How how does that sit with you? you I like the living part. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. In a world where there's a Sir Michael Jagger, um, all bets are off, aren't they? (laughs) It's it's very odd. It's a long way from the kid who walked into the National Gallery of Victoria with no shoes at, at what, nine years old? Uh, Yeah, I think it was. Can you tell me about that? Actually, can you tell me why there's a National Gallery of Victoria? <laughs> How does that work, the nation of Victoria? Um, look, we, uh, you know, I, I grew up in, in Perth in the suburbs, um, state housing area, you know, white working class. And we kind of knew, we were told by the culture that all the real Australia was elsewhere it, and it, it sort of occurred on the East Coast. Everyone in television was, you know, from, from the East. Skippy the bush kangaroo was from the Waratah National Park, wherever that was, but it wasn't where we were. So my mum and dad, um, in the days before the... I think this is the summer of 69, 70, in the days before the Nullarbor, the road across the Nullarbor was sealed, we drove to Australia... And uh, it was quite—it was quite the adventure. And in the you know Hillman Hunter um, station wagon with you know five of us, and um, and one of, we had to go to all these sacred sites. We had to go to the MCG, of course, and we had to go to the Maya Music Bowl because the Seekers had played there, and uh, consecrated ground, you know. And then um, for some reason, Mum and Dad decided that we should go to the National Gallery of Victoria. And it was a you know it was a pretty momentous uh, occasion. I mean, I, I I guess I was opened up to a whole pile of things, but it was a it was a really awkward beginning because we yeah we showed up and went to the ticket office and um, and they looked us up and down and said you can't come in here without shoes on, <laughs> um, and oh, I was just dying. You know, I was so embarrassed and um, and Dad being you know. He says, mate, don't worry, we're from Queensland. Uh, and they let us in. Why? Well, obviously, you know, obviously there's a sort of a strata, stratum of, of, of 
cultural poverty or there's a kind of class system where we found someone who was beneath us. It was, it was Queensland. We got special dispensation. You know, I had two stubbed toes. It was, and it was, it was mortifying. But, and I, f I felt the first half hour I was hiding behind Henry Moore statues. Um, but, it, but it was our opening into the, into the world of art, you know, and the world of the imagination. And, you know, my parents didn't get, get, didn't get to finish school. Um, in, in many ways, you know, they were part of a cohort of people who were constrained and thwarted by class. Um, and they, they just did everything they could to lift us up. So we, we, we travelled on, the, on, the, on their support and their, their hopes for us. And, um, yeah, we all went to state schools um, and we went places where our parents couldn't and, um, yeah, we felt like we did it on the back of their labour and aspirations. How soon after that trip to the NGV did you decide you were going to be a writer? Uh, it, was, it must have been pretty close because I, was, I, was, I think I was 10 when I stuck my flag in the, in the sand and said that, you know, that I was going to be a writer. Um, and look, you know, what was I thinking? I've ne I'd never met a writer. <laughs> I, I didn't meet a writer until I was 18 or 19. I didn't know what writers really did. I mean, I loved books, but... That was, I guess that's what I was declaring to myself and to my family and occasionally to other people in the, in the world, um, is that, I, you know, I wanted to be a part of that strange thing that happens when you go into a book and you, and you get taken into another world. Um, you can live someone else's life. You can, you know, if you're a little scabby need boy in Karen Up, um, you can be, um, you know, a 19th century woman where you can be on another planet or, um, yeah, it was a, it, it's enchanting. I mean, it's just being transported into other places for next to nothing, you know, for absolutely for nothing. All well, well, our books came from the library, <laughs> the Osborne Park Library. It was a hell of a drive. <laughs> um, and And so, you know, for me, being a... Choosing to be a writer was just, I want, it was like, I want that. I want to be connected to, to that. And I did find that, you know, writing my own stories as a child and then as a teenager and then, you know, when I was publishing as a teenager, it was the process of writing um, when, it was, when it was working was like, the, was like reading. It was like being taken out of myself into the eternal present tense. Um, and I guess... That might be one of the reasons I stuck with it, or it st stuck with me, <laughs> is being able, you know, having the privilege to go to go back there. Your parents sound like such amazing people. It was beautiful to hear about the support they've given you. Um, you say your dad smelt like Denkarub and quickies. Why, why Denkarub? Uh, he'd had a terrible accident um, when I was five, and um, for most of my childhood, he was. Recovering from from you know having so many of his bones broken and uh, his his body sort of rearranged by a motor vehicle accident and um, yeah he you know it was a really a really surprising I mean I guess having had him disappear out of our lives to be in a coma for for 
weeks, um, watching my mother be prepared by others for his probable death or if he did recover, then, you know, him being an invalid for the rest of his life and ours. Um, he turns 91 by the, tomorrow, by the way. Um, um, yeah, so it, it, was, it was damage and, and I think it had a profound psychological effect on me uh, uh, as, a, as a little, as in, you know, five. Well, I wasn't even in school. Um, and to see, you know, the parents, your, your parents are the biggest people in your life. They're the, they're the responsible people that you look to. Um, and, you know, they're wiser, stronger, bigger, everything, you know. They've got the keys to the car, the, all the, they have the money. Um, but to see your father broken, uh, yes, the world becomes very dangerous place, you know, and children who experience, you know, trauma and grief, um, I mean, you know, much, much more serious than what we went through, you know, I could, you can understand why that resonates, you know, and how long it stays with people and, and with families. And I reckon you can see this in your writing too, you know, accidents befall people all of a sudden, there's a lot of car accidents in your books, you know, the, the shifty shadow. Mm. Um, do you think... Yeah, you get T-boned by, by life. Yeah. Um, I mean, in good ways as well. I mean, lots, of, lots of lots of the big events in your life, um, you know, take you by surprise. They just they slam into you one way or another. Whether that's falling in love or or whether that's becoming a parent. Um, uh, certainly, in my case, it was you know a lot of things that we didn't plan on happened. You know. Um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of road trauma. And look, my my father was actually professionally in accidents. I mean, he's, he's a, a cop, traffic cop. He's yeah. a copper, you know. And and um, he was on the bikes, as it was called. He was in the job. That was so. He's a copper. Those of us in fa in the families, you know, oh, your my man's in the job too. Um, you knew what his number. You knew what their number was. But yeah, he worked in the accidents division, so he was in in accidents. So. <laughs> And then he was in one. So we were always in accidents. It was our, that was, you know, because if you've got one person in a job like that, the whole family's in. Yeah. So five years old when that happened. But I think also five years old when you had your first surf. What was that? Uh, yeah, that was great. What uh, was that moment like? Do you remember it? Oh, yeah. You're never going to forget that. Uh, my, my cousins, uh, this, was, this was the 60s, so it would have been 1965. South Scarborough Beach, I think, and my two cousins who were girls um, who were maybe five, six, seven years older than me, they, they paddled me out on a huge 60s-style surfboard, sort of Gidget surfboard, you know, and turned me around and pushed me into a wave and and that was it. I was I was addicted um, thereafter. I was, I was gone. Are you writing an essay... The oceanic scale of things often scrambled my head. The immensity and beauty were too much to process. You say it's like falling in love. Mm. Does it still have the same feeling? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm still addicted. I mean, um, oh, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a victim, a lifelong victim. <laughs> but it is that sort of thing of um, being connected to something wild and, and powerful and beautiful. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a lovely feeling of momentum. I mean, it looks pretty repetitive um, from the shore. And I remember some old geezer on the beach saying, 
Timmy, you're just sitting out there for hours, just bobbing around like tea bags. <laughs> you know, what's what's the what's the go? You know, um, and I really couldn't I really couldn't explain it because the, the the bobbing around like a tea bag waiting mm. is sort of part of it. You know, you get long stretches where nothing happens, and you know the beautiful thing about surfing is that it is it. Is, you're riding the energy from an event that's already over. A storm somewhere across the horizon has generated these these waves, um, these lines of disturbance, and they're just radiating out until they hit land. And you know, there we are, waiting for it. You know, and as a as a rider, you go to the desk every day, um, and you're you're waiting for these things to to show up. These kind of um, Memories, events, disturbances, um, waves of energy to to arrive, and like a surfer, you've got to turn around, paddle your guts out to try and get up to its speed, and and ride that momentum to the beach while you can. You know, half thrilled, half terrified. You studied creative writing at Curtin University. Uh, you had Elizabeth Jolly for a teacher there. Mm. At this point, you were already getting published in magazines. Did you know? You were good. Uh, I, I wonder. Um, I knew I was hardworking, mm. um, and I knew I, I knew I was determined. Um, I thought I might be good. I was worried that when th- when things went well for me, I was kind of embarrassed and couldn't quite own it. And I and I f- for. For a long time, actually. I mean, not when I was not long after I was a student, after I've been publishing for years. I reckon I would, it took me ten years to not feel bad about doing well. Yeah. Um, because there's, it's art's not fair. Mm. Um, stuff isn't distributed evenly, you know. And you can, in many other f- parts of life, you can you can redistribute wealth. You can redistribute. Land, you can you can compensate for life's many injustices. You can change, you can change governments, you can change policy, but it's like sport. You, you know, at some really brutal level, you've got it or you haven't got it, and what you do with it is the is the issue. So there were people that I had the enormous benefit from their expertise and their goodwill and their work and their help, who. Uh, more or less would concede that they that they could see that I had something that they didn't and they were older. And those, those people, you know, those are the people who take people forward. They're the people who carry culture forward and they identify people who've got something, you know. Um, and, they're, and they're the people that you don't want to disappoint because you're wasting something that they, you know, they wouldn't waste if they had it. Well, you didn't disappoint. I mean, in 81, you won the Vogel Award, which is an award for an unpublished manuscript. That was for An Open Swimmer. Uh, An Open Swimmer is about Jera. He's a young man kind of searching for meaning in his life. There's a lot of fishing, camping, diving. What inspired that first book? I couldn't possibly think. (laughs) (laughs) I was doing a lot of that. Um, Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a young person's book. Uh, um, I guess it was it was me as a you know seventeen year old, 18, 19 year old, in that in that 
period of searching for meaning, being caught in the spaces between, you know, adulthood and, and adolescence um, and trying to navigate the confusions of love and friendship and, um, and being drunk on the natural world but not necessarily having a language for it. So, and I remember Helen Garner uh, reviewed it for the National Times. God, that was, I don't know if anyone's old enough here to remember the National Times, but I love the National Times. Um, and she, she, she reviewed it sort of kindly and respectfully, but basically said it was like an overpruned tree. <laughs> <laughs> There's not that many sentences went to the end of the page. Um, but I was, I was truly, you know, about trying to distill something, makes, you know, trying to, you know, almost trying to make a novel into a poem. Some people can be a bit cringy about their first book. Um, how do you feel about that book now? I haven't read it for decades. I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> uh, no, I, don't, I mean, I, I, I acknowledge that I wrote it. I can't, I can, um, n- no idea. But if you ask me what happens on page whatever, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't. Well, I'll tell you. Jarrah <laughs> <laughs> well, meets this guy living out in this shack, he's this kind of recluse living out there. Yeah, I used to have a thing about hermits, yeah. Yeah, well, because yeah. you, kn- you knew a hermit? Yeah, right? I knew a few, yeah. yeah well, you know, tell me about they Frank were all Cooper. failed hermits if I found them. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there was, there was an old guy um, who, li- who, who lived at uh, Wachinicup um, called Frank Cooper and he, um, I think he was a, a war veteran and... Um, lived out there for years and, and out in the middle of nowhere. I kind of literally stumbled on him once, but there were, there were, there were people like... I realised that there were people like that on the, along the south coast in particular and, and on the central west coast who, who were damaged and who in some way... Uh, I don't really know Frank's story, um, but who, who retreated, you know, retired hurt from life... And um, it was just usually them and a dog or a parrot. And I was just, I, was, I mean, I was interested in, in hermits. I was interested in monks. I was interested in that, that kind of withdrawal from the world and contemplate, you know. I don't think a lot of those people were out there to contemplate. I think they were out to drink homebrew. <laughs> um, um, but I was interested in older people who, to whom I wasn't related who had stories to tell that they weren't telling. I guess that was, they were mysterious to me. I mean, I was, I was a kid, you know, um, but to see, to see them living a, a life that was clearly damaged, um, I was always interested in people who had clearly a big story to tell, who didn't have the language to express it. I was always interested in people who had people from my class background, people from my side of the, you know, the wrong country and the wrong hemisphere because um, that was what we grew up with, the idea that you, you lived on the wrong side of the wrong country and the wrong hemisphere. Um, but those people that I knew, I knew they had strong feelings. I knew that they, they had experiences. They, did, they didn't have the language to express it. So I, they, in, in, a, in that sense, from the very beginning, they were my people in, in terms of who I wrote about. Two years after An Open Swimmer, you win the Miles Franklin for Shallows, which is just amazing to happen so young. Then you get the Miles again for Cloud Street. And I know lots of people here are fans of that one. So I do want to talk about Cloud Street a bit. Um, 
How much of that story comes from the story of your own grandparents? Oh, a bit, yeah. I mean, I, um, I was conscious when I, in the 80s when I was thinking about this story um, that, well, A, uh, uh, all, the, all, this, all the kind of oral history of my families um, on both sides, um, I, I, I was interested. People would, you know, either tell stories or let things slip. Um, uh, which is telling a story, I guess, mm-hmm. isn't it? Uh, especially if you've got a little earworm like, or an earwigger like me in the in the in the house. Um, but I was conscious that the places that um, the, the sites of all these stories of, of you know where so and so met someone or where this funny thing happened or where this shocking thing happened, they were all disappearing. They were all gone. They were, you know the Perth was just being bulldozed in the 60s and then again in the 80s. Um, anything that was left over from the 60s, all these beautiful Georgian buildings, all, all the, you know, the Perth that my grandparents knew um, and that my parents knew was a strange, was a foreign place to me and my, my children never saw it. So I guess it was a period when I was um, in my 20s when I wanted to try and capture that and... Um, so I spent years trying to figure out a way. Yeah, look, my grandmother did live in a army tent in the backyard in Shenton Park um, for you, thirty you, for thirty you, something years. Do you know why? No, not really. I never even really thought about why. I mean, just <laughs> grandma that's lives, my in tent. lives in a tent. <laughs> Seven kids, maybe that's it. Um, um, you know, drawing a line in the sand, one way or another. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 found, I found my grandparents interesting and, and, and their stories interesting. I mean, I didn't always find them comfortable because, um, you know, old people, what are you going to do with them when you're young? Um, <laughs> you know, um, but I, yeah, a lot of that stuff found its way into Cloud Street and it was just trying to find a kind of a, a voice for it and, and I wanted it to, to be m- musical, you know, and... Um, and it was it was odd. I, I wrote some of it in in West Perth. I, I wrote some of it in Leederville. I wrote some of it in Ireland. I wrote a lot of it in Paris, and and I finished it in um, in the Greek islands. Uh, I could still remember the the day where some lovely man let me um, use one of his rooms because we had a we had a small child at the time. We lived in a tiny place. Um, so he gave me a spare bedroom to work in and I remember finishing the book and then pushing open the louvered shutters, you know, and looking out over the, over the, the Saronic Gulf to the Peloponnese and thinking, oh, I can go home now. Yeah. <laughs> I am interested in the idea of writing a story which is so West Australian. You know, you're writing about the Swan River, you're writing about Geraldton, you're writing about Margaret River, trying to summon that place from a cottage in Ireland or, you know, a seaside villa in Greece. How do you do that? Is it easier? Is it harder? I don't know. It's just what happened. Um, but I, I think you... Um, I mean, I was horribly homesick. I mean, I, I knew I was privileged to, to win a scholarship and to, to travel. You know, we, we'd never thought that we would ever... You know, my wife and I, you know, we got... I mean, I think I was 
I was nine when I proposed to her, 10 when I decided to be a writer. About 15 minutes later, we got married. <laughs> and 12 minutes after that, we had kids, you know. So, you know, we both knew that the understanding was that we'd taken a vow of poverty to, you know, to be going to be a... If you're going to be in this writing caper, they weren't, you weren't going to make any money out of it. So we never thought we would travel. We got a scholarship. So I just tried not to waste it by crying myself to sleep every night because I was homesick. But I was, I mean, I loved the experience and, I, and we have very fond memories of that time. But I do remember just being physically you know, ill with longing. But there's a lot, there's, long, there's a great power in longing. And, and I think a lot of great art has been produced by, you know, musicians, writers, painters um, who are longing, you know, whether that's a, a person who's no longer with them, um, a place that no longer exists, an ecosystem that doesn't exist, a country that doesn't exist, you know, or a place that, from which you're exiled, um, and I was, I was just, you know, a 20-something person who had been fortunate enough to win a travel scholarship. <laughs> I didn't have much to moan about. But um, so, yeah, I think it was longing. You were living in this cottage in Ireland and people who've read The Writers will recognise that place. Um, this is a place, you know, you're in the shadow of this castle and there's all these stories around about ghosts and this being a really mm. haunted place. Mm. I find that interesting that you were writing about the Cloud Street House, which, you know, is haunted in its own particular way. Um, do you think that the place, Ireland, and those ghost stories bled back into the story of the Cloud Street home? Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I, I, I landscapes and, you know, when you're in the presence of us, when you're, when you're in a strong place, you do get a sense of its, just how oceanic the, its stories are. It's, um, you know, the ex- just so much experience, human experience there, um, and of course, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a native inhabitant of the, of the, you know, the world's largest island that happens to be the host to the world's longest, still extant civilization. You know, it's just, humans were here when Neanderthals were still in Europe. You know, there's, there's no stories, there's no place as storied as this. So, but, you know, Irish castle, what are you going to do? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was just dealing with second best, you know. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I think just the fact that people leave, people's experience leaves their mark on landscape, we know that it leaves its mark on ecosystems, but I think it leaves its mark on, on, on buildings um, and... I didn't really fully buy into the whole haunted castle thing, but some things happened. <laughs> Do you want to tell me any ghost stories? Oh, I don't know. We woke up in the middle of the night one night and all the taps were on. It was just like, um, you know, that was odd. But, you know, we weren't locking the doors, so we could have had some... And we lived in the middle of nowhere, so we didn't hear a vehicle. Um, it was just... So, you know, taps were on. Well, you had a ghost who was really into hygiene. Yeah, we just, we just could have had a plumbing problem. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, you've been publishing for 40 years. Um, we're sitting next to an incredible stack of books here, which isn't even all of them, just the amount I could get off my mum's bookshelf. Um, which book 
Oh, you're not going to go there. No. <laughs> I, I, I want to start with what was the hardest? Was there a book that was the hardest for you to write? I can I can start the other way around. The, the two books that were easiest mm. to to write, um, Blueback was the easiest one to write. Um, so that I think I got that, that I think I knocked that off inside a business week. Uh, it was it was great. Um, Cloud Street was four and a half years, but it was a lot of fun. So that I it was a there was a lot of pleasure in in that. Um, uh, Dirt music was probably the hardest to finish. So it's not that the writing was okay, it was finishing it. It was, it was finding the novel in the manuscript and, and making an end. There's not a point, you learn this early on, there's not a point where a novel's finished, there's just a novel where you surrender. You know, sorry, a point at which you, you surrender, you just give up, you realise that you, this is as far as you can go without going mad. And you know, I pushed it pretty hard with dirt music in terms of, the boundary there. I mean, what does it do to you when you can't finish? Like, do you lose confidence in what you're doing? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, confidence is one of those things that um, uh, you, you hypnotise yourself into having um, every day at, at work because, you know, there's no guarantee that you can do what, you know, today what you did yesterday or last year. And people have often asked me about that, you know, sense of, confidence and fit do you feel how does it that you feel able to press on you know and, and why why because essentially if you're even if you're singing in the shower you're secretly hoping that someone can hear you and appreciate how <laughs> nice your voice is um so you know but so that sort of presumes that you think you should be listened to you know um but really that you know every day you, you've got to hypnotize yourself into thinking that you can do it You've got to convince yourself that you can, that that you're worthy, that 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 it's possible, because it's it's really bloody hard, you know. And you you're literally pulling stuff out of the air, and uh, and if you're doing it for a living and you've got no plan B, um, that can be terrifying. And you know, if you allow yourself to to be listening to all the noise, out, out, you know, in terms of what people think about you or your work, or you know. That, that would be paralysing. So, dirt music was was really tough. I I um, was wrapping it up. <laughs> my wife left for work at eight o'clock in the morning, and I was wrapping it up to send it to my publisher. Finally, you know, it was going to be an end. I mean, I had children who'd never known me, um, and then without them working on dirt music because it took years. Um, and she came home at four o'clock and I was still there unwrapping it and wrapping it and unwrapping it and I, could, I just knew I'd, it wasn't right. And, um, but the book had already been advertised. It, its name was out there. It had a publishing, publishing date. So I, I, um, I rewrote it in um, 55 days and nights. Um, so seven years of work. I just... I got up in the middle of the night after just tossing and turning and panicking and just rode or walked, maybe I rode down to the office in the dark, sharpened a box of pencils, got out a ream of paper and started again. Um, and and I, I went for so long that it was dark again when I, but it wasn't the same night. And I just did that for 55 days and nights while my wife looked on like I was a ticking bomb, you know, which I'm sure I was. 
Yeah. So look, it taught me a great lesson. You know, it's only a freaking book. Um, and I don't think it's worth going mad over or tormenting your family um, over. It was, a, it, was a dark, it was a dark time. And I remember finishing it and then I got in the car and I drove to South Australia and turned around and drove back. <laughs> Why? I have no idea. <laughs> I, um, I just, I needed, to, I needed to get out. I needed to give everyone a break. Um, and I just kept driving and driving. And also the, the highway was sealed <laughs> since, since not, so it was different from, from 1969. Um, and it was, there, was, there was nothing out there. There was no one out there. I mean, obviously everything was out there. You know, my, my country was out there. But it was in the days before I had a mobile phone. Um, oh, there was no reception anyway. It was just great. I just drove and drove and drove and pulled over at the end of the end of the day and rolled out the swag and and got up in the morning and kept driving. And then I got to the head of Bite and I uh, thought, oh, maybe I'll see some whales because it's winter and it was raining. And I just got out and stood there in five minutes in the rain. I thought, bugger this. <laughs> I turned around and drove home. <laughs> 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 nature boy. <laughs> and, I, and I felt fine. I felt purged, you know. I felt like I'd, um, like I hadn't gone into my hut on the, on the coast and festered for the next 50 years like some of the old guys that I'd seen as a young person. Um, somehow I got it out of me. And, you know, the book got published and everyone was happy. Everyone kept their jobs and, you know. It, it won you your third Miles Franklin. Yeah, there's that, yeah. <laughs> you were talking about trying to finish and I remember when I started perusing my mum's bookshelf when I was a teenager and I sometimes struggled because of the endings of your novels and you've said you resist the false shape of closure. There's not necessarily tying everything up with a neat bow. Mm. Why are you suspicious of a neat ending? I just don't think they're true because I don't, I don't, just life doesn't provide neat endings so I'm not that committed to realism but up, you know that's a point where I do stick with it because um, let's face it most of us die you know without finishing the sentence you know the, the thought that was developing that you know, <laughs> summon them all to the bedside and you, can't, you don't even get to you don't even get to say it you know most middle-aged men die on the toilet they don't even get they don't even get that part done um <laughs> Not most, but many, obviously. Uh, there's data. Um, and also, this is really, it's a really boring part of films and, um, and novels where you can see that the author thinks that you really, you need to land the plane, taxi to the, up the runway, taxi, put the air bridge out. It's, you just don't need it. Nobody, you know, and, and also... Um, You've got to pump a lot of air into a into the balloon to make it dangerously squeaky. Um, my son, one of my sons, used to have this huge aversion to uh, tight balloons because the you know the explosion, you know. And if you, if you you could torture him just by rubbing your fingers on it. Like, so you've you've gone to all this work, you know, to to get this thing in the air and fill it and make it tight and dangerous. Um, you know, you leave it tight and dangerous. You don't let it all let all the air go out. So it's just some wet thing that looks like a used condom. You know, <laughs> just, 
you know. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I always liked films that didn't, that didn't have to do all the housekeeping at the end and, 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 and books as well, you know, where you, you're left still going. I'm going to do another which book question. Mm-hmm. Is there a book you're most proud of? Uh, there could be. I wouldn't be telling you. That's <laughs> um, just like pushing out one of your children and saying, this is my favourite, you know. <laughs> Sorry, kids. Um, it's bad parenting, isn't it? Uh, it's a bit dispiriting for the others. And I know, you know, this is how, you know, hereditary monarchies run, but... Um, um, and, and these, things, these things change. I mean, some, some books I'm fond of because they paid the rent and put my kids through school. Some books I'm fond of because they were easy to write. Some books um, have things in them that that surprised me. That that you know, on the very rare occasions that I'll go back and have a look, that I can't quite believe that um, I did. You know, and I do. I don't. I don't go back and read. You know, f- for lots of reasons. But um, but I have been surprised. I mean, I was I was driving a few years ago. I was driving and listening to a book on the. On, on the ABC, I think, listening to someone read from a, a, a book and um, I'm driving along thinking, this is just pretty, I should look, this just sounds pretty good. I should look this person up. And then they announced it at the end. It was, it's one of my books. It was so embarrassing. I was, I was so ashamed of myself. I couldn't believe it. I was just thinking, hang on, mate, just waiting for the end because that's, that's a good sentence. That's just like, <laughs> I had... No, I didn't recognise a word. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's work. When it's over, it's done, you know. It's, um, and I'm fond of them in a kind of family way. Um, but, no, I wouldn't... I wouldn't uh, if I had a favourite, out of respect for the others, I, I, I wouldn't... <laughs> we don't want the I books to hear. No, that's right. No, there would be, be a riot, a revolution. <laughs> I'm strangled you... in my own bed. How do you cope with... Criticism. I mean, your books are very widely loved, but, you know, as you say, some people will complain about, oh, it's too blokey or don't like the vernacular. I mean, do you hear that? Does it worry you? Oh, would it help? Mm. You know, would, no, I think learning early on that, you know, I wasn't even a proper Australian um, and that even as an English speaker, I wasn't a proper English speaker. Um, so you know, I published internationally f- from very early on, and um, so there was always a headwind. And you were, you know, it was too, you were too this or too, too Australian, too difficult, too much vernacular, just too much. You know, people complained that um, I was, was writing about these dim-witted people. Why don't I write about more intelligent people? I mean, you know, even Australian critics, you know, Cloud Street wasn't universally. Uh, lauded by the critics. I mean, it, what was the, I think, the age? Winton makes meal of lamb and pickles. <laughs> <laughs> People, you know, you like it, you don't like it, you know. It's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't bother me much. I mean, it's, um, there's, other, there's other writers to read and I don't think I'm forcing anybody to read them. Mm. I, I feel sorry for people in school, indentured, um, indent, the indentured reader. But, no, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm grateful to have been read. You mentioned 
the little book Blueback, the one that was really easy to write. Um, and it's a school text, I think. So a lot of kids have read that one and probably cried like I did when they read it. Can you just tell us a little bit about what Blueback is about? It's about 12 bucks, isn't it? Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it's about, a, it's about a little boy who lives with his widowed mother on the south coast and he's living in her shadow. She's, she's the mighty figure. Um, so you know, at a human level it's about a boy learning the power of the matriarch who also stands in for his father. So in that sense, it was always important for me for the story to be about this boy learning from the, the wisdom and the courage of his mother. Um, but they also, they live in a sort of an unspoiled place um, and the two of them have a kind of an ongoing relationship or encounter with a, a big fish, um, a blue groper, which they, they call blueback. And... Um, that, that book just slipped out. It was just, it was, um, it was lovely to experience to write. I, there was almost no rewriting. It just came out formed. It was like Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, you know, with a Catholic mother doing the dishes and a baby falls, pick that up, will you love? And baby just slips out and one of the other kids has to pick it up and wipe it off. Um, it, it was, it was a, it was nice to write and it was a it was a kind of a love song in, in a way and and it's interesting I, I get more mail about that book um, than any book I've ever written and um, you know a couple of hours ago I, I saw the film as well so tell us okay. what's it like Are you take take a hanky yeah. Um, yeah it's beautifully shot it's got an incredible score by um, Nigel Westlake so it's 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 a you know it's a family film. It's something that you'd you take your daughter to see and um, and have a bit of a blub, you know. Um, and it comes at a sort of timely moment because know? this story is not just about the relationship between Abel and his mum and the fish. This is also about this patch of coast that they live on, which comes under environmental threat. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you wrote this book. I think before. You did this yourself with the Ningaloo. Yeah, this is the odd thing about, you know, if you're in this caper long enough, you realise that um, you, it's inevitable that you're going to repeat yourself, but not in the conventional way. You, 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 you find yourself living out things that you've already written. You find yourself inhabiting scenes that you've already imagined and published. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think... Um, Blueback came out in 96 or 7 and then I became one of those characters um, I, between 2000 and 2003 I didn't do anything except you know try and save Ningaloo Reef um, with the help of 100,000 other people and it's odd these you know, the things that, that you write that that you've sort of imagined yourself into into a into a place um, it's weird, but sometimes you've, and that's not the only. That's not the only time you you just find yourself. Um, I mean, there's another scene from that from that book where um, Abel, late in life, takes his ma- mother, who's now very frail and she can't swim anymore, and he he takes her 
and puts her in the water um, the way she did to him when he was a baby. And um, he su- suspends her in the in the water. And, um, and it was weird. I um, A few years ago, my mum, who was a great swimmer and as a swimming teacher, can't swim anymore. Um, and I did the same. And I'm standing there in the water with my wife and, and my mother, looking at each other, it's like, remind you of anything <laughs> and and it was odd because I think all of us were conscious of the connection um as all as if um yeah as if we were inhabiting some fictional reality um so it's, it's yeah it's funny what funny what a little book can can do it, it look I don't think it predicts the future but you you're already you're always imagining your future anyway you know but yeah it was a lovely moment do you remember when your environmental consciousness awoke, when you really realised that this was something that you were passionate about? Oh, that came early. I mean, I, I, I was a teenager in Albany, so, you know, um, on Saturdays we used to go out to the whaling station and um, watch tourists throw up. <laughs> it, was, it was top sport. <laughs> God, we, oiks we were... Um, but yeah, whaling was still happening um, in Australia. So, and so to, to witness uh, some of the ocean's largest creatures and the planet's largest creatures, who are also very intelligent creatures, you know, watching a sperm whale have its head sawn off with a steam-powered saw, and watching it have its skin ripped off, um, and it's all its organs come out. Um, just so, you know, for fertiliser and cosmetics, um, the stupidity of it, you know, uh, that, that had a real impact. I mean, obviously the the smell was pretty impressive as well. Um, the smell of boiling blubber and flesh, that those of us who knew it um, will never forget it. So, yeah, that, that, that was probably the seed. Um, look, one thing, when I lived in Albany, I never saw a live whale. And you can see more live whales in 15 minutes now than, than anyone ever could. You know, there were 300 humpbacks left when whaling stopped um, in, in Australia and now they're nearly, you know, between 30 and 40,000. Um, you know, it's a great privilege to have been, to see and experience right up close, as close as you can get to the greatest conservation success story of our time and that that sort of gives me hope you know that we do we can make good decisions um we can make cultural change we can pull back from the brink um because you know 300 whales left in a in a in a, in a population is um getting close to you know functional extinction and um and now people now you know now people will see whales swimming by all the time, you know, and, and you can actually swim with them. It's a, you know, people get paid. Um, that was, yeah, that was the beginning for me and that's, that, that personal connection probably keeps me going when, it, when things feel grim, which they, which they do. And what do you see as what you can do? You know, you're a fiction writer. Can, yeah, can I mean, books, I mean, can writing... I'm in the business of useless beauty, you know. There's no utility in, in art, and I'm happy with that. I don't think art needs an excuse to exist. Um, we need 
beauty in our lives um, so we don't go mad. And we've always done it. Ever, you know, we have the, the paintings in this, on this country as old as any that show that um, they were necessary. What can you do? Uh, um, it's what you can do as a citizen that, that counts, you know, and I think change, change is made possible by keeping hope alive. And hope is not something that you inherit, that you just have, like good genes and rich parents. Um, hope is something that's manufactured, it's generated by the actions of other people. And cultural change is, is produced by people getting together being disciplined and organised and making things happen, you know. Um, I, I, think, I think nihilism is just a form of tourism. If, you, if you're a tourist in your own country, if you're a tourist on your own planet, um, then you're irrelevant. You've, you know, you're, you're a collaborator. You're, not, you're a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. Um, and that kind of lazy, cheap passivity, that lazy cynicism, um, I, I just got no time for it. And you're doing your bit to, I guess, open people's eyes up. Uh, you're working on your doco about <laughs> the Ningaloo Reef. How's it going? Uh, it's, it's, it's about drowning me at the moment, but it's a, this will be our third year on the, on the project. Um, we shot for 12, 14 months, I think, um, Nobody's made, nobody's been allowed to make, you know, as in-depth a piece of work about about the Northwest Cape, about the three ecosystems of Ningaloo. Um, and in a way, this is one of the world's last great wild places. Um, these are ca- the canaries in the, in the mine. And um, if we lose these places, we've lost everything. Because um, once those places go, our fate is sealed, you know. Once the world's coral reefs are gone, um, the, the, the clock's ticking on, on our existence. Thinking about that, working on this for... So that's motivating, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> Three years on this doco, do you still find time to write? Uh, some, sometimes during the shoot I was able to go back to my day job. Yeah, I tried, I tried to tried to keep a novel going at the same time, which was just bonkers. Uh, 40 years on, does writing still bring you the same joy? Um, yeah, it must. I'm still doing it. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, what else am I going to do? Yeah, I, I, that's why I'm still reading books, you know. Poetry and fiction and memoir and biography, you know, all the stories that we tell, um, all the music that we make, it's still, it's still enchanting. It still feeds me and the natural world feeds me and, you know, so that's, those things are just non-negotiables. Um, so I still want to be a part of both. I still want to be, I still want to be reading and writing and I still want to be in the wild world and fighting for it. My last question. Uh, you talked about your obsession with hermits. Um, obviously, in that first book, we meet the guy living in the shack. We see another one in your most recent novel, The Shepherd's Hut. Mm. Um, is this the end goal for you, to be a recluse in the bush? 
Well, I've made a meal of that one, haven't I? Here I am in front of a crowd, um, not wearing a mask. <laughs> what an idiot. Um, yeah, look, I... I um, no, I need to... I, look, I do like my own company. I do avoid crowds, but, I, you know, you need to engage, you know, because um, people feed you as well, you know. That's why you have a family, so that... One day maybe they will feed you, <laughs> especially when you need it. Um, no, I, I, ha- I have faith in people, you know. Um, I think we are, you know, we are the genius species. We, we do have the, all the gifts that m- many other species don't have. Um, so people, you know, people drive me nuts. Um, people make me shout at the telly. <laughs> um, but people also inspire me, you know, and... One of the nice things about being in my caper for 40 years is that I've worked with people who are half my age, people who don't even look like they should be out of school, who have things to teach me. So I think that's the thing. If you, if you do go off and lock yourself into the hut, you, you lock yourself off from a lot of new stuff. You lock yourself off from the passion and courage of young people. And that's, that's just a waste of, waste of life that... Yeah, no, it's t- tempted as I am, the, the hut, <laughs> the hut, uh, the hut option's probably not there. I mean, look, I, I do, I am more reclusive than other people, but I do come out. And thank you for coming out tonight for the big weekend of books. Could everyone please thank Tim Winton? Tim Winton celebrating forty years of writing. We were speaking on Wajak Nungaland in Perth. You've been listening to The Book Show and I'm Claire Nichols. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.